It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics podcast in The Times. I'm Matt Chorley. What happens when politics fails the people? They take matters into their own hands, as we saw dramatically in Bristol at the weekend, when protesters tore down a statue of Edward Colston, who made a fortune from the slave trade in the 17th century. They tore down the statue and threw it into the city's harbour. Uh, while many of us were felt conflicted, it's of course possible to think that it's no bad thing that the statue was toppled while not supporting angry mobs and criminal damage. For one man, this is both personal and political. Marvin Rees is the Labour Mayor of Bristol and joins me now. Welcome, Marvin, to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's great to have you on. You were born in the city you now lead. I want to, we'll come back, obviously, to the events of the last few days in a minute. But I want to go sort of right back to the beginning. What was it like for you as a mixed-race boy growing up in the 1970s in Bristol? My memories of my childhood are one of feeling uh, vulnerable and quite exposed and always looking for safety and security. Um, uh, you know, obviously, I, I didn't have words to explain all that was going on. But before my mum was born, um, she was advised as a single white woman with no money, <laughs> and no, no profession, unmarried, uh, to have me aborted. And then once I was born, she was advised to put me up for adoption if she was a good woman. Um, and those themes played themselves out um, through our lives. So, you know, so I certainly remember that constant feeling of vulnerability you know, as a young uh, person. And then into the 1980s, uh, we always had the riots. And as a young mixed race kid with, with living in, um, you know, a predominantly, uh, or, or the part of the city in which a lot of black and Asian people lived in Eastern, you know, navigating uh, the riots with primary white caring family was was an interesting experience as well. Uh, how did that sort of manifest itself for you on a sort of daily basis, whether, you know, walking to school or, you know, when you were older, being out and about in Bristol? Because, it's a, it's a city with, like you said, large non-white population, but really concentrated in certain areas. Yeah, so my, you know, I've shared it was, it was usual, best to say it was, it was usual to be walking down the street to have people shout out their car windows or your coons or whatever. That That's just what happened. We didn't even, you know, you know, bat an eye when that used to happen as young kids. Um we would make conscious decisions, certainly as well, particularly when we became teenagers, conscious decisions about which parts of the city we could and could not go to uh, with that feeling of safety. Now, it doesn't mean that if we went to those parts of the city, you wouldn't come out alive. But we we had a sense of where was safe and where was not safe to go on the basis of the colour of our skin. At the same time, you know, I had a quite a seminal moment when I was 13. This was in between the riots 
when a black school friend of mine said to me, so Marv, in a war between black and white, whose side are you going to be on? No, and many people might dismiss that as a silly question, you know, kind of nonsense of we're all one race, the human race and all that. But to a 13-year-old in the middle of a racially tense 1980s, struggling with their identity, uh, you know, as a teenager anyway, um, that was a that was a very significant question, you know, the kind of suggestion that I was, you know, those people that I ran away from racists with were, were on my side. Um, somehow so I had, you know, questions about the extent to which I belonged um, to the group. Uh, you know, and that's that. That is the reality I had to navigate. At the same time, I could run away, or I could be chased, or we could be abused by people, white, you know, by white people on the street. And I go home. My my mum, my nan, my granddad, my aunt, you know, my primary carers are white people. Uh, you know, and um, I didn't. You know, I obviously was processing that. It didn't cause me sleepless nights. Um, but obviously, it's all come together to form my kind of sense of identity conflict you know peace and reconciliation how do we get to those things how do we live with um, difference and contradiction in our lives and what is the the situation in bristol now at what point do you think in your life has, uh, did, was a turning point that things improved in bristol or do, do you think there are still those deep-seated you know if you're the sort of young mixed race boy in bristol today would they be having the same conflicts do you think yeah, it was only a few years ago, actually, that a school asked me and a number of other people to come in and talk with them about the experiences of mixed heritage kids um, because they were noticing them appearing on the wrong end of uh, mental health, school attainment and, and all these other indicators. That's really important to say here. That does not, you know, this is no way uh, and this should never be interpreted as watered-down racism. That, that, that is racism. And, and as a mixed-race person, what I am is black. And I am mixed race, you know, I am, I am both of these things, uh, you know, at the same time. So, no, and, and again, I think people get caught up in the idea that because society is a lot more polite, because it's no longer so acceptable to, you know, abuse people on the street and we have more kind of overt mixing, uh, you know, across our geography, that somehow things have got better. Racism was never just about rude words and people being mean to each other. Racism is about economic and political inequality. And in accident, you know, we're, it's being exposed right now that those things are just haven't changed. Um, you know, it's just it's just changed its presentation, um, and that's perhaps more dangerous. I think it was Malcolm X said, you know, at least in the South they're honest with me. Um, and Martin Luther King's radicalization happened in the North of America, really, when you know dealing with the Southern racists was easy. They're overt and they're in your face. The Northern <laughs> were Democrat cities led by liberals. And uh, and yet had mass uh, you know mass black ghettos and 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 that's that's always a dangerous place uh, to be with someone who looks like your friends, but actually we've got systems that churn out inequalities year after year. So let's turn to the events then of the of the weekend. I mean, given that we've seen uh, Black Lives Matter protests obviously across America in the past fortnight uh, following the death of George Floyd, and them springing up okay, but why is it? Do you think that it was in Bristol? It's something more dramatic more symbolic and political and you know why why do you think that happened in bristol in particular listening to the analysis come out over the you know the days weeks and, and years ahead is going to be fascinating on that front you know if i was just to quickly grab a few things one is bristol does have a history of rebellion uh, we've had the suffragettes we have the 1831 riots just covered in david olashuga's documentary on the history in the house so uh, there is that spirit that people have often talked about in Bristol that, you know, it does things differently and it does uh, rebel. 
there was this statue. I mean, it is a statue to a slaver in the middle of the city that has been a focus of city attention for some time. Now, people have talked about it for a long time, but the city's only really begun to talk about um, its relationship with slaving in a mature way since, uh, you know, since the very, very late 1990s. And then around the abolition 200 year, 2007, you know, then obviously it was on the table then because we had the 200 years since the William Wilberforce action and so forth. And so this, the, the conversation has really stepped up. Events have come together, you know, uh, COVID, turmoil, people's lostness, people's frustration with politics, uh, you know, events in the US as a catalyst that have just, you know, swept around the world. Um, and that statue at that point in time became a focal point for uh, whatever was going on, people's frustration with ongoing race inequality, uh, sense of political voicelessness. Um, and, and that's what they chose to focus on. I mean, I, I have to be at pains to point out, and it's important for me to do so, I do not condone criminal damage. And I had some very uh, significant concerns about mass gatherings in the middle of a COVID pandemic where we have no vaccine. And I've shared those. Um, but I've also been pointing out that we do need to try to understand events. Even if we don't, un even if we don't like them, it's important that we try to understand them and not just look at the events, but look at the underlying causes. Unfortunately, some of the political voices at a national level just are refusing to do that. And it's, it's disheartening to hear it. Uh, where were you when the statue came down? Uh, what was sort of going through your mind when you saw those videos and the pictures? Well, I was taking care of my children. I was out with my children on a walk because I had been advising people to uh, avoid mass gatherings. I... I, as I was kept pointing out in some of the interviews, I've no, I've no, I had no problem with the protest. I want the protest, but any protest that requires a mass gathering is something I have to cancel against because of the COVID, yeah. the threat and the potential of a second wave um, hitting our city, which would disproportionately hit the black and brown lives uh, that we were saying matter. But these are these were technical um, technical difficulties of it all, obviously. But I, you know, I was getting updates on my phone, much to the consternation of my children. <laughs> I kept, kept looking. We were on the, you know, walking along beside a river, and I was in, in contact with the control center, looking at the crowds growing, um, listening, getting the reports as people started to gather around the statue, getting the report as the ropes went round the statue, being told people were trying to pull it over, then told it was being pulled over, and then I get more messages saying they're taking it to the harbor, and then. It's gone in the harbour, so I was getting that that running communications as the, as the day went on. It was such a sort of dramatic moment and so symbolic as well that you know, like you said because it, it's a statue that's you know I've walked past myself many times. I've seen so often right in the centre of the city, and for it then to end up in the harbour, I think is Tristan Cork from uh, the Bristol Post pointed out. You know, almost at the exact spot where people would have been boarding ships as slaves. You know, all those years ago. Do you think the police were right to stand back and let the protesters do what they were doing? Do you think it was the right call? I do. I mean, but first on, on it going into the harbour, again, again, irrespective of what you think of it, and there are people who feel wounded by that, it is a piece of historical poetry torn down, dragged through the streets. I mean, you think about some of the punishments that would have been meted out on enslaved um, Africans, you know, thrown off the quayside where the where Colston's ships would undoubtedly have docked next to a bridge called Perrow's Bridge, named yeah. after a Bristol slave, into the water. And you think about all the Africans that were thrown overboard and finished their lives um, underwater. I mean, the historical poetry of that should not be lost you know, on anyone. But I think the police were absolutely outstanding. This is an example of ego-free, wise policing with decisions made with local knowledge 
uh, not just the events in the moment, but an, an understanding of what's gone before and what's and what might likely come after, not just on the day, but in the weeks and months and future relationships ahead. Making pronouncements from London about tough and all this, that and the other is absolutely um, irresponsible. We avoided major physical confrontation. What we've ended up with in Bristol is criminal damage, right? And, and actually, the way you interpret that criminal damage is, is, is there, obviously, it has different meanings for different people. But what we've ended up with criminal, is with criminal damage. What we didn't end up with in Bristol is a big fight, injuries, people in the hospital, not, not just personal injury, but financial costs to the hospital as well, smashed windows, you know, and a, society, and, and a city today thinking, how the heck are we going to live together? We just had a big fight on the streets and we had, uh, you know, all the van- you know, all the people getting bashed up. I really think the, the humility of the policing was a fantastic example of, you know, of leadership. And our city is better today for the way they handled events when the statue was pulled down. It's emerged today that Priti Patel, Home Secretary, has had what's been described as a firm conversation with Andy Marsh, who's the, as you know, the Chief Constable of Avon and Somerset. Uh, police uh, demanding an explanation for it all. Presumably you've not had a similar firm conversation with Andy by the sound of it, but do you think Priti Patel's right on that? Priti Patel is wrong. What does she understand about Bristol? You know, what does she understand about the culture and the tone and how you lead a place? You know, and this is one of the problems of our national government as well. They stand behind a podium in Whitehall and Westminster. They don't have the self-awareness and humility to recognise the city is diverse. And I don't just mean ethnically diverse or racially diverse. I mean, it is different. That's why they made a mess of the school openings. You know, it's why they're having a bit of a debacle over the way they lead on COVID. It's the failure to consult with the National Health Service before making announcements about how, you know, how, help, uh, uh, you know, masks in hospitals. Uh, and it's the same with uh, policing now. They're, doing, they're making the same error in thinking that you can get some, you know, you know, Oxbridge brainy people together in Westminster and Whitehall and come up with a solution to cities of which you have no knowledge. And, you know, and, I, and I'll say, uh, I think if you go around and talk to people, the way our police have behaved in this city, not just in this event, but the way they've gone about policing Bristol over the last few years under this chief constable and this Bristol commander and the one before him, I would say, has been absolutely um, incredible. Have you heard from Priti Patel or anyone in the government? You know, I would love to hear from government sometimes because we are actually trying to get some certainty at the moment on on how we, as a city, secure the investment we need that will be the stimulus for getting us, you know, through the economic uh, slumps that's to come. And and this is one of our grievances uh, our, as city leaders across the core cities, and I think the M9 uh, may share the same, is in that um, national government are using a busted model. They're mistaking control for leadership. They control information, they want to control finance, but they don't engage in constructive conversation with the leaders of cities around the country and then co-create the solutions that will unleash the economic power, the talent, the contribution those cities can make to UK uh, PLC. It's a, it's, a, it's a model that's about 40 years out of debate, but there's a, there's a real lack of self-awareness and there's a lack of humility to let go of that control and begin to recognise that that's the way that modern countries have to work. So I, I rarely hear from government. Every now and again, we get a webinar and we're told what announcements are going to come. But we're just, as city leaders, we're like the rest of the country. We're surprised every time there's a government announcement at the moment through COVID. <laughs> we find out what's going on when everyone else finds out. And then people start phoning us up and saying, well, what are we going to do about that grant for business? What are you going to do about that? We're trying to work it out because we've just found out at five o'clock that night as well. 
it's an out-of-date model of national leadership. It needs to change urgently. Just before we move on to talk more broadly about what's going on in uh, Bristol, um, two weeks after George Floyd's death in America, Boris Johnson finally broke his silence with a proper uh, statement on the Black Lives Matter protests and campaigns. Let's take a quick listen to what he said. I truly believe that we are a much, much less racist society than we were. In many ways, we're far happier and better. But we must also frankly acknowledge that there is so much more to do in eradicating prejudice and creating opportunity. And the government I lead is committed to that effort. And so I say, yes, you're right. We're all right to say black lives matter. And to all those who have chosen to protest peacefully and who have insisted on social distancing, I say, yes, of course, I hear you, I understand. But I must also say that we are in a time of national trial when for months this whole country has come together to fight a deadly plague. After such sacrifice, we can't now let it get out of control. So Marvin, given the the level of public interest, public anger at what's been going on, do you think Boris Johnson got that right? The important thing is to distinguish between the heart and the systems, right? I can't look into Boris Johnson's heart and I wouldn't step in to say whether he does or does not really care about black, black lives, right? Because you end up in that point where people who say, oh, you offend me, I care and this, that and the other. I ain't got, you know, I think that's a, that's a bottomless debate that is not worth going into. But what you should look at is the evidence, right, of, our, of how we're managing our systems. 10 years of austerity, right, a hostile environment, Windrush scandal does not tell me that what we have at the moment is a government that thinks Black Lives Matter. The way the migration debate through Brexit and beyond was was handled made me feel uncomfortable as a black man. I'm born in this country. I have a British passport, right? And my own government made me feel uncomfortable about my Britishness. Now, I'm never going to give that up. And and by the way, my white family go back in this country uh, centuries, right? And to uh, Wales and Ireland as well before that. I'm not giving anyone the ground to say that I, you know, I'm not British. I am, I am British, right? But what I will say is that the way the country's been led over recent years has made me realise that in other people's eyes, I am not in the middle circle. If you see belonging in the UK as a series of concentric circles with those who truly belong in that middle circle, I haven't been made to feel I'm in that middle circle. Um, and I think when you see the uh, ongoing racial inequalities uh, being exposed, when our local budgets are cut in local authority, we, we, you know, it's mental health services that play themselves out in race inequalities and class inequalities, I dare say, too, actually. It's affordable housing. It's educational interventions. All these are the things that define and drive uh, race inequalities. Uh, and if you think Black Lives Matter, you would take a public health approach to national leadership. You'd be investing in those early interventions that give people a platform to build constructive lives resi- and have resilient lives. And that's just not what's happening. So you may say, I want to do the right thing. But at some point, you've got to put your money where your mouth is. You've got to put your policy where, you, where your proclamations are. Uh, and unfortunately, that's not something I've experienced since getting elected as mayor. It's certainly not something. It's not something I experienced before I was elected as mayor. So, so I totally understand. You're not saying that you know you don't know whether or not Boris Johnson is racist, but essentially, you think the government as a system is. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I would never make any claim to look into a person's heart. I'm sure he's a 
you know, really nice man. And you could, I'm sure people go out for a nice dinner with him and, and, and other ministers. I, you know, I have, I have friends in Conservative Party, top class, uh, top class people. But the, you know, the game of racism, the game of, uh, uh, you know, of reconciliation, I'm just going to call it a game really, but, you know, it, it's not about getting together, singing Kumbaya together, sharing food, enjoying each other's music and being nice to each other. That's not the solution to racism. The solution to racism is economic equality. The solution to racism is brown children, like black parents, knowing that when their children are born, they are not disproportionately likely to end up getting a poor educational outcome in a mental health institution, in prison, and dying early, or at least becoming unwell early. Unfortunately, that is the reality of our society at the moment. If you're serious about racism, get beyond the platitudes, and, and you know, and the you know David Brent-ish, I like Sydney Poitier films, and <laughs> get you know, and get yourself in the ballpark of dealing with those systemic inequalities that mean that every day people are born with a lower life expectancy on the because of the color of their skin. And and I would say actually. The important point there is that connects the tackling of racism to the issue of class, because I don't want people to think, oh, he talks about race, he's not about class. You have to begin to grab a hold of those drivers that mean that we are one of the most socially immobile countries in the OECD, right? You are, your parental background is one of the single most important indicators for, as to where you end up in life. We will not solve racism and we will not solve inequality in general in this country. That has to be one of the key purpose uh, you know of our you know of our policy and to that extent you can't just make that up with smart people in london it's investing in public health which is being really challenged you know it's investing in the inventions um you know in our schools it's affordable quality homes so that children have a foundation from which to build for the future in fact i would say just pull the michael marmot reports out of the bag and turn them into real policy. That, that would that would be one of the single most important things you could do to deal with social immobility, class inequality and race inequality in this country. All right, in a moment, I want to ask you about uh, Bristol's role in the sort of the national picture and how how it can punch through. Everyone's talking about the north-south divide and the red wall in the north, um, but what about uh, the west? Uh, so we'll talk about that in a sec. Uh, we'll be back after this. 15 the last like 6 months 12 months in in national politics there's been a lot made of the north south divide you know the 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 Tories knocking down the red wall in the north and all the focus you know if we went to a stage where the government couldn't make an announcement without sticking the words not the north in there as if it was one place um, how do places like Bristol and the wider southwest you know punch through in all that particularly when if there's one thing we know in the coming months and years, there's going to be even less money knocking around. Yeah, that's a challenge for a place like Bristol because we are lumped in with the South quite often in those conversations. And as I have pointed out to some of my fellow core cities, you know, um, we're one of the worst cities to be born black in. We're one of the worst cities to be born poor in. 
you know we we are a very wealthy city and yet we 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 have probably a, over 40 nearer 48,000 people in food insecurity uh, in Bristol so it's not that the the south is this sunny highland in which there's fantastic um, opportunity it's just not like that and what we need to do is as I'm often saying hold a few truths together at the same time right there is a north south divide um but there is horrific inequality in some of our cities in the, in the south um not least you know bristol huge numbers of homeless people 12,000 on waiting list housing families in temporary accommodation racial tensions and the race inequalities that have lingered on that sometimes come into tensions and so forth so um the government have to recognize that and again it means getting outside of westminster getting outside of uh, whitehall and actually understanding uh the, the country and all its um diversity uh what we are actually doing um to deal with some of that is not just saying hey you know can we have some money, please? We have not taken that uh, approach to government. We've been trying to make our own stuff happen. So we've launched the Western Gateway. Uh, so there's a Northern Powerhouse, Midlands Engine. We've launched the Western Gateway. Cardiff and Bristol are the two core cities smack in the middle, but it incorporates uh, Swindon to Swansea and in Gloucester to uh, Bath and North Somerset. That's conservative, uh, liberal Democrat and Labour local authority leaders coming together with business to, to, to build our own powerhouse region. And that's much more reflective of the way the economy actually works in this part of the country, um, rather than just our local authority boundaries. And through that vehicle, we're really driving to get you know some big infrastructure done, get some housing delivered, uh, do um, um, carbon neutral growth, uh, you know, and so forth. So we're, we're really getting on the front foot with that. Obviously, because of coronavirus delaying the elections, you've got like an extra an extra free year in office. Uh, what do you want to hope to try and get done in that, making the most of the extra 12 months? We've continually pointed out that, you know, our priority is building affordable homes um, in Bristol. That's, that's, that's the critical thing for us. Now, clearly, we have some things that have come up. You know, we need to lead the city through um, COVID and hopefully avoid a second wave that's it's hugely important to us and 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 find those inputs to come you know find those investments in our major infrastructure projects that i think could really underpin recovery i mean on that point i just say again one of the one of our challenges at the moment is we need certainty at local government level in the same way that business needs certainty if local government gets certainty uh, we can then be better partners to business Right, coming into the city because we can we can tell you, hey, we we will be here. We will be investing in this, that, and the other. But at the moment, we keep being served up. We don't even get. It's not even that there's an absence of certainty. National governments serve up uncertainty. So you know, the beginning, the the one of the first semin- seminars we had with the Secretary of State. Um, Secretary of State said, "Spend what you need to spend. Government are with you. Just get us through COVID." Now the language is, "Well, we're sharing the burden." well wait there you just told us what we need to spend the language has also become those things that we asked you to spend money on as in so if you spent stuff on if you spent money on things that you thought needed to be spent on uh, but we didn't ask you to do it then that's on your watch you know and actually we like many other cities are now facing you know we're potentially the biggest concentration of power in london in decades um, because it, we got an 18 million pound hole in our budget. Liverpool's got a hole. Manchester's got. We all the major cities have got major financial holes resulting from COVID, not just from the increase of costs, but from the loss of revenues. And that's what government's refusing to recognise. Now, if we are stripped back to the bone financially, all that power will be sucked into Westminster and Whitehall, you know, and it would be 
an invisible concentration of power in this country that we haven't seen in decades is a real is a real problem and that will really underserve the, the country as well so our challenge is to hopefully make sure that we can get a deal with government to make sure we're adequately funded so we can do the job not of serving ourselves but obviously making our cities flourish and then when we flourish the country will flourish um so that's a that's a huge priority for us getting that investment I suppose I should just ask you about your um, new boss. Well, maybe you don't see, maybe you don't see him as your new boss, Keir Starmer. How, what did you make of his start in the job in pretty extraordinary circumstances? Some people say he's, you know, he's the the barrister in him is, you know, very good at holding Boris Johnson to account. Other people saying he's, you know, he lacks a bit of excitement and he's a bit too cautious. Where do you stand on that? I've welcomed the start he's got off to. I think it's a contrast. I I think that um, Johnson's. Uh, bluster, which, you know, is attractive to some and, and, and so forth, you know, is really exposed for being uh, bluster in the face of meaningful questions. Um, I also really welcome, actually, one of the one of the most important things that Keir has done since coming in. He's invited Nick Forbes, uh, Labour leader on LGA and leader of Newcastle, into the shadow cabinet meetings. Right? right from the beginning, the national leadership began to host a series of webinars, including Labour local government leaders incredibly significant you know, for a number of reasons. One is because it is the country urgently needs to reshape the way it does leadership, as I shared earlier on. It can't all be done from the centre, but you have to recognise the leadership out in places, in cities. Secondly, we've got to get beyond this narrative that Labour's in opposition. Uh, Labour leads uh, nine of the 10 core cities, you know, well, say nine of the 11 core cities, because Belfast have joined us now. Uh, that's you know, Manchester, Liverpool, Bristol, Cardiff, you know, Sheffield, we, Labour's, so Labour's actually in power. The fact that that power is being under, under-resourced by national government is another question. Um, but, but, the, but the new leadership has really uh, recognised that and taken it seriously, uh, you know, and that is something that's incredibly uh, welcome. Just finally then, going back to where, where the conversation started, really, in the, the Colston statue, you've talked about how it'll probably be fished out of the harbour and put in a, in a museum. What would you like to see back on that empty plinth in the centre of Bristol? Well, that, here's the opportunity for the city to have a conversation about that. Now, there was a myth that the people of Bristol put that statue up uh, there before. Uh, yeah, my, my, one of my cousins, then our family tree, we found out that, you know, way back when, one of our great, 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 whatever, however many great <laughs> grandfathers was born in a workhouse in the city. We didn't put the plinth up. <laughs> we didn't we didn't put the statue up. We had no money. Um, so it was rich people in Bristol that put the statue up for another rich person. Yeah, it was a memory of that rich person, you know, and I got no bones about it, but let's be accurate and honest about that. Now is the opportunity for the city to come together to have a discussion about what should go in its public space. What should what should we choose to honour uh, with that plinth and with that uh, part of the city? Um, and that, that offers us a chance to have a really, uh, you know, fascinating conversation about who we are and what we want to be. What I'd really like to tie that up with, actually, is... Um, is a piece of work by Bristol historians. I've been I've been stressing the need to do proper history, not political history where we we choose and we doctor what we say about people, but let historians go on really understanding what we choose to honour. All our memorials in Bristol. Let's let the historians from our two universities go and begin to talk to us about what they mean and how they came about, and and then let that conversation feed over into the way the city talks about what they should do with that public space. Uh, down there. So I'm in no rush to make any statements other than I think it's an incredible opportunity uh, for, for the city to take ownership of itself and speak to itself about what it wants to be. But you'd like to see something on that plinth rather than leaving it empty? Something, someone, I don't know. 
oh yeah, I, um, I'd like to see something on there um, at some point, but empty in and of itself can be quite special. Yeah. Right? It's like, um, you know, um, like un, un, unmarked graves or, you know, space, you know, empty space or space consciously left empty could be special. I mean, I'm no artist, I'm no poet, but I recognize the way artists, artists could, could begin to, uh, to talk about and interpret that. And the fact that it is no longer there in and of itself is a statement. What was on that plinth? Well, it used to be the space of a slaver and the people, you know, people in Bristol tore it down. Wow, that has meaning. That that says something, you know, about the city. At the same time, I am constantly at pains to acknowledge that there are some people in the city who are mortified at it being torn down or, or frightened about it uh, being turned down and their sense of loss of purchase and place uh, within Bristol uh, that's resulted from it. So I'm not. I don't. I don't celebrate the way it was done. I don't hide the fact that the the statue was a personal affront to me and people uh, like me. And I don't pretend to mourn its removal. But I do have to recognise the fact that opinion in the city is there are different views in the city and different experiences of of what happened uh, when it was pulled down. And, and my job as a political leader is to try and build a city in which in which everyone, irrespective of their their views on what happened, uh, feel that this is their home. Yeah, but it was an extraordinary moment. You know, people talk about you know trying to rewrite history, or but you know this is now part of uh, Bristol's uh, history as well. Uh, Marvin Reese, really good to speak to you. Thank you, Marvin Reese. There, and there's loads of excellent reporting on the Times.co.uk if you want to read more about uh, the history of Edward Colston, uh, the way as a philanthropist he spent lots of money uh, in Bristol, uh, albeit money raised uh, from the slave trade. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Acast, Spotify, or wherever you listen so you don't miss any future episodes. And stay up to date on news about Times Radio. It launches on June the 29th. It will be available on DAB, on an app online, and on Smart Speaker. And I'll be on Times Radio every Monday to Thursday between 10 and 1 with a political show, which will be very much like the podcast. I'll be delighted if you could join me. Uh, you can get all the news about Times Radio. Uh, just follow Times Radio at Times Radio on uh, Instagram or Twitter. But for now, from me, Matt Cholly, it's goodbye.